I'm, I'm really hoping that it has been a year unlike any other year that we are going to experience, um, which is my way of saying, not guaranteeing, but saying that 2021 really needs to be not like 2020. Um, but it's interesting, one of the things that has been really helpful about 2020 is that it has revealed what we really want. Okay, this is going to be group participation. Here's an example. Guys, remember when we were all under like house arrest? Or we've got people now in the church who are watching from home because they're quarantined. Um, here's my question for you, and I want out loud responses. What restaurant did you find that you were craving to go to as soon as house arrest was over? Chick-fil-A, Papacitas? Cracker Barrel, KFC? El Sombrero, Texas Roadhouse. I haven't heard anyone say Laterno Cafeteria. <laughs> Um, for my family, it was Dudley's. Um, if you only, if I only have one more meal left before I die, I want it to be Dudley's crawfish etouffee over dirty rice. Um, and then lots of apple pie. Um, what about Politics. Haven't politics this year revealed a lot about what we want? Right, I think, I think this is fair to say for most of us that looking at this past presidential election or ongoing presidential election, depending on how you want to look at it, um, it really doesn't matter who you are or what your party affiliation is. This was an election that just bubbled up a lot of conflicting emotions inside of us. Um, it, it, it caused us to uh, really weigh how do we put different convictions next to each other and hold these convictions um, and forced us to come to grips with what really does matter here to me. Um, how about relationships? What has this year done to our relationships? It has bubbled up in significant ways what is important to us in our relationships, hasn't it? I mean, it's caused us to think about uh, how important is it that people think just like me if I'm going to stay in relationships with them? How am I going to handle when there's disagreements or differences of opinion? How much of that am I going to tolerate in a relationship? How much can I be bothered to change my life patterns for someone else? How little does it take for me to break a long-standing relationship with someone? All of us, I think, have been frustrated, whether it's been at the level of a coronavirus, politics, or, or in our relationships within our families, our churches, our friendships. We have been frustrated by the cruelty, selfishness that we've seen, by lies, and we wonder why can't people just be decent to one another? 
why can't we all just get along? And then, if we are careful, and if we are honest, we look in ourselves, and we see the answer. And the answer has a lot to do with what's going on inside of us. We recognize that we are not always the decent people that we expect others to be. It is at exactly this point that 2020 intersects Romans 12 through 16. And we are wrapping up our series in Romans. And as we look at the last part of Romans, we are going to be faced with questions like, what kind of people should we strive to be? What should we value? How should we handle disagreement? How should we treat other people? And, and once we know those things, how do we become people that do those things? And that's what Paul takes on in Romans 12 through 16. This is our last sermon in Romans, and this is, uh, like last week, it's going to be a review. So let me just remind us of some big pictures of Romans. We said that the whole book of Romans is summarized in these two verses, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteous, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we pointed out last week that really the first 11 chapters of Romans is all explaining the first part of those two verses. And the rest of the book explains the righteous shall live by faith. And here is, again, what we see as we look at the divide in Romans, chapters 12, and I keep saying chapters 12 through 16, it's really chapters 12 through 15, verse 13, talk about how the righteous live in three types of relationships. How do they live in relationships with other believers within the church? How do, we relate, how do they relate to people who are outside of the church? And then how do they relate to what it says in the passage, it calls in the passage, the weak and the strong. Here's another way of thinking about that. How do we relate to one another when we have deep convictions and we disagree? Incredibly, incredibly helpful insight. Now, there are a number of uh, engineering type folks who are looking at this and they're saying, huh, last week we covered 11 chapters, this week we're covering like three I bet today's sermon is only going to be about a third as long as last week's sermon. Uh, and this is where we need to explain that sermon math doesn't work that way. Um, so this uh, sermon math is basically how much can I say in the amount of time that I have. Um, so we'll just keep going until the cowboys come on. Which is what, Thursday? Never mind. Um, so we're going to look at how do the righteous live by faith, and as, as Paul starts in this section, within the church. Now, the first thing that he does is, is he actually gives us a bridge between Romans chapters 1 through 11 and Romans 12 through the rest of the book. And that bridge is the first two verses of Romans 12, 
where he says, I appeal to you, brothers, or appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. These are great verses for you to memorize, by the way. Uh, And then we've got a couple of commands that become very important for 12 through 16. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the reason that you want to do that, the result of doing that, is then you may be able to discern what the will of God is. And so basically, as we think of relationships, what we need to think of is, is as we as we are no longer influenced and shaped by the world, as we are more transformed in our thinking by the gospel, that is how we know how to handle ourselves, what God's will is in our relationships and in our circumstances in life. And as it applies to relationships, that's going to become very important. So one of the ways that you think about what Paul is doing in the first part of Romans chapter 12 is that he is building a bridge between the gospel that he has laid out in Romans 1 through 11 and the healthy gospel-centered relationships that he is going to talk about in the rest of the book. And the way to get from here to there is through the transformation of our mind. Um, This is not in my sermon notes, so this is going to be dangerous. It's not in my sermon notes because I just saw this right before church. There, we have Canadians in the room. Um, (laughs) This is just weird. There's like this law that some part of Canada just passed that said, you're not allowed to allow moose to lick your car. Um, I, um, those of us in Texas, that never occurred to us that that would actually need to be a thing. Um, but, but apparently, here's the problem. Moose love salt. And if you've ever lived in a snowbound part of the world, you know that one of the things that put, gets put on roads is salt to help make it safe to drive. So salt builds up on the cars, and um, before that salt completely corrodes away your car, um, it gets stuck on your car. And apparently what's happening to these crazy moose in Canada is they see these cars that usually pull over and stop, and it's like, hey, look at this moose, that's really cool, and, and wow, this moose is coming close to us. And then the moose comes up to the car and starts to just lick all the salt off the car. Here's the problem with that. Moose start to look at cars and think, hey, that's a source of food. And can you see why that would be a problem to both the moose and to drivers? What we are going to see in Romans 12 through 16 is something similar happens to us. Our thinking gets conformed to a way of viewing the world where we see, I have this need. There's something that I want desperately. And look, here's this way of getting it, so I'm going to go pursue it. And our mind gets thinking that's the right way of getting it. But what Scripture is going to tell us is that way will kill us. That way will kill us. So we have to have our thinking transformed so we do not become moose licking cars. Okay? 
So the rest of chapter 12 is about how we do not become moose-looking cars within the church. And here's what Paul says, and we're going to see two different things in chapter 12. The first is we have to recognize that the church is one interdependent. That's an extremely important word, interdependent body. And, and as you might remember when we went through this passage, we saw that we are, in fact, one body, and we have many members. Those different members have different gifts. Each one of us has something different that we contribute to the body of Christ. But in fact... We are all one body. We are members one of another. And what that means is I can't function without the body of Christ any more than a toe can be cut off and expected to live. But here's what our culture tries to tell us about how we relate. Here's what our culture is trying to conform us to in our thinking. Our culture tries to say you are not interdependent, you are independent. And so we had someone um, who's very close to us, very close to our family, who struggled, and I think still struggles with, when she was raised, what her parents told her is, if you are not independent, you are not a healthy person. And so what that got translated, there was a healthy way that they meant that, but what got translated in her thinking was, if she depended on anyone, she was unhealthy. And that's part of what our our culture reinforces. We are independent. We don't need anyone. And so church exists for me. And the second the church stops meeting my needs, the second the church tells me that, that there's something about me that I don't like or confronts sin in my life, then I'm just gonna leave. And our relationships become disposable. I get frustrated that 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 you don't are you aren't meeting my needs and my expectations and so I'm just going to move on for you from you our culture desperately wants that we would be in relationships with people that we can count on and depend on but that's not possible if we are also sending the message that we don't need anyone else a transformed mind looks different Transform mind sees the gospel, and the gospel teaches us that God makes us his children. And that's not just a statement about our relationship with God, it's a statement about our relationship with one another. And so I, I can't see my relationships with other Christians as disposable. No matter how much I may disagree with them, no matter how much they hurt me or make me upset, my relationships are not disposable. I need them and they need me. And the result of that transformed thinking, if that thinking really becomes clear in my mind, is that relationships become relationships where we can depend on one another. Paul goes on in chapter 12 to talk about the fact that lukewarm relationships in the church are not okay. He gives the command in in verse 9 of chapter 12 to let love be genuine These are two words that we take for granted, but they're important words to stop and think about. How does the Bible understand love? Love in Scripture means I sacrificially am committed to two things in my relationship with you. I'm committed to unity and relationship, and I'm committed to your good. And I will sacrificially pursue both of those things. And what it means to be genuine 
It's, it's, it's to be the real thing. It's, it's, it's to be honest. It's to be true. Let love, let your desire for unity and your desire for good be honest and real and active. Paul also tells us in that section that we are to live peaceably with all. Again, peace is a word we come across a lot in Scripture, but we skip over what it really means. We think it means not in conflict with other people. That's part of it. But peace in the Bible means to live in flourishing relationships where people are thriving, where you are thriving and I am thriving through our relationship with one another. So sometimes you read that verse and think, well, I'm not in conflict with that person, so we're good. I haven't spoken with them in a year and a half, but I'm not in conflict, so we're good. And then we get to this one, so far as it depends on you. And we say to ourselves, um, I made a phone call and left a message. They never called me back, so it really, you know, that's as far as it depends on me. It's now up to them. Ball's in their court. No. As far as it depends on you means you've exhausted all your options. There is nothing else that you can do. So you are doing everything that is possible to be in thriving relationship with this other person. That is what Paul sets out is the goal, that we would be in life-giving, growing relationships And let's be honest, it's exactly what our culture wants. They want us to be in life-giving, growing relationships. But the problem is, the culture is trying to transform us into thinking that says peace really isn't all that valuable. Again, relationships are disposable. Or I can tolerate shallow relationships. I can tolerate relationships where there has been hurt, there's been disappointment, there's been real pain that's been caused, but but we're just going to ignore it and move on. Or our culture says we can actually take satisfaction with tearing other people down. I just became aware of a situation, not in our church. It's important to know that. But it's people I know in my life. And one of them is an older Christian. One of them is a younger Christian. And they know each other. And this older Christian the best I can tell, made up lies about this younger Christian and then told a bunch of people that I know and this younger Christian know. He just made this stuff up. And there is a sort of satisfaction that this person is getting out of Making herself look better than other people, I I don't know. Being the authority, I have no idea. But so often, if I'm honest, I too take too much satisfaction in seeing other people maybe put in their place. That's our culture's thinking. We desperately want life-giving relationships, but our relationships tend to be characterized by a deep, deep selfishness that doesn't value thriving in relationship. That's not how 
A transformed mind thinks. A transformed mind recognizes what the gospel says. The gospel says that God pursued my good and unity with me even when I was his enemy. And that my thriving in life depends completely on God. So I don't have to put other people down to make myself feel better. I don't have to be the center of attention to make myself feel better. I don't, I don't have to be in charge to make myself feel better because my thriving doesn't depend on those things. And so a transformed mind says, I can pursue your good and unity with you so that we both thrive. And I can do that because I know that my good depends on God and not my circumstances. And that's the bridge from the gospel to life-giving, growing relationships. So here's how we can summarize chapter 12. God unites us into his family. God pursues my good and my thriving. That's the message of the gospel. When that message thinks in, it changes my thinking. I recognize that I need others and they need me to to thrive. And my good and my thriving is secure so I can pursue others. And the result of that are relationships where we can depend on one another and that give us life and growth. I have certain friends that um, are very important in my life. Some of them I only may see once every two years. One I probably see once every five years. Uh, others I see much more frequently. But um, some of the things that these friendships all have in common is an ability to be with them and to walk away from that relationship feeling like I have been given life. I have been rejuvenated. And it happens because they are willing to ask hard questions that others will avoid asking and they will ask it for my good and they will ask it in a context that that never causes me to question if my acceptance is based on my answer. They are kind to me in front of my face and they are kind to me behind my back. They are available if I ever have needs. And they are vulnerable with me about their own struggles, so I don't feel like I'm a project in their lives. Paul lays out a picture of dependable, life-giving relationships with one another. And I will encourage you, if you ever read through the book of Acts, one of the things that you will see, it is the fact that Christians had these types of relationships with each other that was the most powerful part of their witness to a world that needed Christ. Because the world looked at how the Christians related to one another and said, I can't explain that, but boy, do I want to be a part of it. And that drew them to Christ. And Paul goes on in chapter 13 to then talk about our relationships with the outside world. And he starts, and you remember, this was such great timing. He starts with our relationships with government. And do you remember as we looked at Romans 13, 1 through 7, one of the things that we saw, I mean, the point that we saw is that relationship with government starts with submission. If you remember, verse 1 and 13, let every person, no exceptions, be subject. That word subject, if you remember, is the word submit to the governing authorities. Why? There is no authority except from God. And if it exists, 
It's been instituted by God. Um, I suspect all of us, including me, right now are doing exactly what we did when we preached Romans 13. We're all going, but what about? Surely he can't really mean that. And we talked about the fact that there are definite examples in Scripture where people engaged in civil disobedience against government. But we were reminded when we looked at this passage that that there is no assumption here that the government would be Christian or that the government would even be moral. The Roman government was neither of those. Remember, the Roman government had just unilaterally declared to all the Jews, get out of the city, you're going to lose your jobs, you're going to lose your houses, you're going to lose everything that you have, you're out for no reason other than we're tired of you. It's in that context that Paul says, be subject to the governing authorities. I promise you, we have not experienced in this country, in our lifetimes, anything like the oppression that the people that that the Romans had experienced in their lifetime. And yet Paul says, be subject to the governing authorities. Well, one of the things that we saw is that there are times, there are extreme cases that you see in Scripture where people are willing to stand up and say, this is inconsistent, so graphically and obviously inconsistent with my ability to reflect the character of God that I must resist. Every time they did that, every time without exception, they were willing to accept the full consequences of that. And every time, their starting point in relationship with government, their starting point was submission. And I think that's Paul's point. That's our starting point. And we may find that, that we have to engage in civil disobedience, and that's, and, and that's okay if we have to do that, but the starting point is submission. In that section, Paul explains why, and he says, really, it's ultimately so that we do not live terrorized, and that we do not live in fear. And his point, as you remember, is that if we start with submission and then we live Christ-like lives in our world, it's no guarantee, but it is the best chance we have for a relationship with government that allows us to serve the Lord and reflect his character. Here's an important consequence of that truth. This election has absolutely, I don't want to say nothing, but let's say nothing to do with my well-being. It doesn't change my view of how I relate to government. This election was not my best chance to serve the Lord and reflect his character. Why? Because it doesn't matter what government's in place, the rules for me are the same. I reflect the character of Jesus, his thinking and his values, whatever circumstance I am put in, no matter who is in charge. Culture tries to give us a different way of thinking about it. Culture doesn't recognize that God is even involved in government. God is not doing any work in our government. God's not a part of our government. At best, government, well, government can be tolerated, or for some people, government is our savior. 
We do want government to be a part of our growth and thriving. But if we make it either our worst enemy or our savior, it will not be a part of our growth and thriving. A transformed mind thinks differently. A transformed mind recognizes that the gospel says that God is sovereign and he is the savior, not government. The gospel recognizes that God is at work in every situation to make us like Christ. And that changes how I think. I trust that God is the highest authority. Government is not my savior. I trust that God is at work through government to make me like Christ, even if it's a government like the emperor of Rome. Spiritual growth through our relationship with government then becomes a possibility because it's about what God is doing in me in the circumstance that I am in. And one of the things that we have heard a lot over the last several years is, he is not my president. And I would like to suggest to you that that's never okay to say. Whether we completely disagree with the president or not. Because what we have to recognize and what that statement does not recognize is that God is the one who is ultimately in charge of who our authorities are. Does that make sense? And if we say, he is not our president, then what we are saying is, God, you failed. We may disagree, but God chose to make this person our president. Then our starting point is submission, and then we move to disobedience, when or if that becomes biblically allowable. Chapter 13 wraps up with our obligations to love others. And remember how this said this. This was really intriguing. Oh, no one, anything except this, except to love. The idea here is that there is an obligation that we have, and that obligation, that debt that we have is to love other people, and it's a debt that can never be paid. And what does this love look like? He explains it later in the chapter. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does not say things about our neighbors, about other people that are not true. Love does not accuse other people of bad motives. Love does not lie, cheat, and steal but a mind that is being conformed to the culture, to our culture, thinks very differently from Paul. A mind that thinks, according to our culture, thinks that it is up to me to protect myself and it is up to me to achieve a good life. And the result of that is that I have no limits on what I'm willing to do to serve myself and to protect myself. If I need to lie, cheat, or steal to avoid the embarrassment of you looking down on me, then I will do it. If I need to make someone look bad to make me look good, then I will do it. We have a world that cries out, why can our relationships, why do they have to wound one another? Why can't they be relationships that heal one another? But the reality is, the problem is, I will lie, cheat, and steal to maintain my sense of well-being, and I will lie, cheat, and steal to keep from being hurt. The gospel says something different. 
In 1 through 11, Paul identified that the cross proves God's love. If you want, if you have any question of whether or not God loves you and how much he loves you, what you do is you look at the cross. There is no greater demonstration of God's love than the cross. And three days later, Jesus was raised again. There is no greater demonstration of God's ability to give new life than Easter. A transformed mind looks at the gospel and says, the way that I must think is that I can trust the lengths that God will go for my good and I can trust the new life that God wants to give me and is in fact giving me. And it is what Jesus called the abundant life. And that leaves me free to not be self-protective and not have to try to achieve my own good life. I am free to be a person who does not wound. So here's how we can summarize the chapter. God is sovereign and working and the cross and Easter prove his love and because of that, our thinking changes. I trust that God is the highest authority and he is working for my good. And because of that, I can look at whoever is in charge and say spiritual growth is possible in this situation. And spiritual growth is always my best life as I'm growing to be like Christ. And I can be in relationships that do not wound, at least to the degree that is up to me, because I know that I am secure and I know that my good is secure. The gospel transforms how we relate to one another. We recognize that we are interdependent and we pursue life-giving, growing relationships. The gospel transforms how we relate to the world that is around us. We submit to authorities because we trust God's authority. We pursue loving others like we are paying off a debt because we recognize that we are loved and that God's power to transform lives is at work within us. And finally, the gospel relates to how we relate to the weak and the strong, or in other words, those who disagree with us. And this is chapter 14, and it takes us really through the end of chapters 15, verse 13. And if you remember in this section, there were disagreements that were going on within the church about what Paul calls opinions. And those opinions had to do with what they ate, and also what days they should consider to be holy. So remember, here's what was going on. You have Jewish Christians in this church, and you have Gentile Christians in this church. The Jewish Christians used to be in charge, but they were kicked out of Rome, and that left the Gentile Christians in charge. And the church started to look a lot more Gentilish than Jewish. And when the Jews came back into Rome, now you have a church that didn't observe the Jewish rules for what they ate in the Jewish uh, holy days. And these Jews are, are really struggling with this. And Paul calls those, the Jewish part of the group, who are insisting that they follow the Jewish rules, he calls them the weak in the faith. And later we'll see that he calls the strong, those who are confident that faith is all they need in relationship with God. So here's how we would hear this today. Any sentence that start with, starts with a Christian doesn't 
it's a really good chance that what's going to come next would be part of the week of the faith. And I gave an example when I did this sermon of my great-grandfather. He was dating my future great-grandmother, and he was very, very concerned about her spiritual well-being. Remember this story? Remember what the problem was? He writes her a letter. We have this letter. Writes her a letter that says he is very concerned about her spiritual well-being because a Christian doesn't go to skating rinks. We laugh at that. Do you think that our generation doesn't do that? Christian doesn't go to that movie. Christian doesn't watch that TV show. Christian doesn't read that book. It may not be appropriate to go to that movie or watch that show or read that book. But being a Christian doesn't depend on it. The point that we saw in this section is that in disputable matters, we are to be convinced in our own minds of what our convictions are and then we are to allow others to be convinced in their minds as well. Unity always trumps your opinion. Always. Always. You have an opinion on a disputable matter? Great. Hold it with conviction. But you are not allowed to break fellowship with other believers over it. You are not allowed to do that. Paul expands us on this idea in the rest of Romans 14 where he says that love trumps freedom. We are not to pass judgment, that is to condemn one another. We are never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Stumbling block is the idea of, of an obstacle, of, of something that stands in the way of spiritual progress. Hindrance is a really fascinating idea. It's the idea actually of a trap. We are not to create these types of obstacles or traps as those around us who have different convictions try to sincerely follow their convictions with the Lord. Now, when we talked about this, remember, we said we are not talking about, as I was raised believing, that there might be someone out there somewhere who might stumble if they see you do that. So don't do, and then there was a list of things that usually, again, were part of a weaker brother list and we're not scriptural don't drink dr pepper don't meet one-on-one -on -one with anyone because if you meet one-on-one -on -one with a woman people might come to the wrong conclusion if you meet one-on-one -on -one with a man people might come to the wrong conclusion so never meet one-on-one -on -one with anyone um, no this is talking about people where i know who these people are i know what their convictions are the Roman church could have, they could have pointed to one another and said, that's a person who really struggles if you eat meat. That's a person who really struggles if you don't celebrate that Jewish holiday. They would have known who the people are. They would have known what the issues are. And they would have recognized that these are really legitimate convictions that these people have. And Paul is saying, don't create problems for them to follow their convictions. You as, as a roommate in college, you might think, 
I know I have freedom not to have to have personal devotions at 7 o'clock every morning. But my roommate believes that that is critical for his relationship with the Lord. I am not going to create obstacles to that. Instead, what we must do is we must build one another up. Those who are strong, that is those who recognize that grace allows freedom, they must be patient. They must bear with the weak. They must limit themselves. They must build up others. Why? Because that's what it means to follow Christ. And it is God who gives us harmony with one another. But he does that as we pursue limiting ourselves, not creating obstacles to others, building others up in order that we may be like Christ. This is not how a mind conformed to the world thinks. A mind that's conformed to the world thinks it's all about me. If you disagree with me, that's more than I can tolerate. If you want to create limits in my life, that's more than, you can, than I can tolerate. And I will always insist on my rights. And then this person will be very upset when disputable issues divide us. In fact, they'll be so upset that, that they might even, I don't know, protest or riot. This is not how a transformed mind thinks. A transformed mind knows that the gospel starts with, I am fallen and sinful, which means I'm wrong a lot. But Jesus loved me sacrificially, and the Holy Spirit is rebuilding me into a new creation. And because of that, my thinking changes. I know that I don't see things correctly all the time. I love specifically because I am loved sacrificially, and I focus on what the Holy Spirit is doing in me and in other people and rebuilding them into something new. And because of that, when we come into disputable issues, whether it's masks, whether it's politics, whether it's what we should serve for Thanksgiving, which right now is a disputable issue in my house, um, it does not divide, but it creates opportunities to grow. Let me summarize what Romans 12 through 15, 13 says about our relationships. These are the relationships it describes. Relationships where we can depend on one another. Relationships that are life-giving to one another. Relationships where we help each other grow. Relationships where we grow under authority, no matter who that authority is. Relationships where we do not wound others. And relationships where debatable issues grow us and not divide us. And the only way that we will get to these types of relationships is through the gospel. The only way that we get there is if we take minds that are conformed to the way this world thinks and this way that the, what this world values, which is all very self-focused, and replaces it with what the gospel declares is true. I am sinful. I am helpless in my sinful condition. My condemnation is just. Boy, you get that far, and you can no longer look down on other people. It is only Jesus' death that saves me from condemnation. I am every but as much dependent on grace as any 
person around me, no matter how wrong I think they are, no matter how much I disagree with them. And Jesus is at work giving me new life and giving them new life. And the best life that I could have is a life with God that becomes more and more like Jesus. And when this truth that the gospel declares really starts sinking into our thinking, it transforms us. And we become people who love and serve God, love and serve others, love sacrificially, submit humbly, and are united with the body of Christ and give the, gra- give the grace that we have received. Is this what we really want? Is that what you want? Because here's what I'm going to suggest. The biggest problem that we have is we actually don't want that. See, I think the principle that we would pull from what Paul has said in these chapters is we must intend to relate to others as recipients of grace. That's what Paul is trying to get them to do. Make this an intention. And there's a difference between intending something and passively wishing for something to happen. If I want to learn to play the piano, there are steps that I have to take if I really intend to learn to play the piano. One, I call Carol Rimpelin and say, I want lessons. Two, when she gives me homework, I do it. If I don't do those two, do those two things, I don't really intend to learn to play the piano. What I really am doing is wishing that piano playing would fall on me like manna from heaven. There's a difference between intending and passively wishing for something to happen. And if our relationships are characterized by dysfunction and disharmony, then I'd like you to consider if the problem is that you have never intended to treat people as if they received the same grace that you have received from Jesus. I'd actually like you to consider if you have ever intended to have a transformed mind? Have you ever intended, said, I really want to do this and will take the necessary steps to think about myself and others the way that Jesus thinks about me and others? I really intend that my automatic default way of thinking about the world around me and the thinking about my relationships is the way that Jesus thinks. My question is, is this something you have intended to happen in the same way that you intend to learn to drive or intend to learn a language or intend to learn a skill or is it something that you are just wishing for and that you hope falls on you like manna? The gospel transforms our mind if we will let it and if we will intend to do so. A mind transformed by the gospel relates to other Christians, the world, and those who disagree with them with a very different mindset than the mind that conforms to the thinking of this world. And the only way to have relationships of trust and harmony and dependability and grace and understanding is if we actually intend to have those relationships and intend to be the kind of people that can have those relationships. Here's the point of the theme of these chapters. Gospel transformation in the Romans must be seen in their relationships. That's what Paul is saying to them in these chapters. 
the implication for us today is that we must start to rebuild broken relationships into gospel relationships. So my question for you is what has 2020 revealed about what you really want? Not in food or restaurants. Has it revealed that you intend to be transformed in your thinking and in your relationships? Or has it revealed that you only wish for transformation to happen for you and to you? Here are some responses that I think that we can take to move beyond passively wishing into actually carrying out our intentions. Start, if you have not done this, memorize Romans 12, 1 through 2. Get the truth of that passage deeper into your soul. Identify and confess one relationship that you've allowed to break in 2020. Pray for the conviction that your relationships must reflect the gospel. Is that really a conviction that you have as strong as any political conviction that you have? It should be stronger. Follow Christ. Reach out to one person to start rebuilding a gospel relationship. It's a cliche to say that healthy relationships begin with you. That is actually not true. Healthy relationships begin with the Lord. They start with the gospel. They start with God's desire for us to live in harmony and his provision of everything that we need to live in harmony. Then it's our turn. And we have to intend to have the harmony that he wants to give. And we have to intend to be the people that makes that harmony possible. And that is how I would like to close this, is in praying that we would be those people. Do you join me in prayer? Father, we start in repentance by confessing that we have we have often wished for gospel-centered, healthy relationships, but we haven't really intended them. We haven't done the work. We haven't been willing to transform ourselves or be transformed by you. Lord, we haven't intended to be the type of people that live in harmony. And so we are reminded by your word of the gospel. And we start with thanking you that even when we have failed to intend to be the people that you want us to be, you meet us with forgiveness. And you still work to transform us. And Lord, all we ask is that you would help us to be conduits of that same grace that we have received from you into the lives of others. And if we can just start there, Lord, our relationships would be transformed. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. So we come to you and ask for your transformative work and your strength in our lives and in our thinking and in our relationships with one another. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.